morning. How's everybody? Doing good? All right. Fantastic. Let's get started. Um, hey, so obviously not Matt Boswell. Um, and it's so interesting that like three years ago, I looked out here um, when I first got to preach and I looked out there and I was like, man, I know like 90% of the people out there. And now I look at you and praise the Lord. I don't know 90% of you anymore. I, that's a weird praise the Lord, but like, honestly, like, I'm just thankful for God's grace that he's continued to build uh, our church and bring new people and new members. And um, so by way of informal introductions, my name is Gabe Boyd. Uh, I proudly serve as the director of family ministries here at the Trails, uh, while simultaneously also leading our Trails students program, which just simply means that I get to hang out with 7th through 12th graders probably more than any of you would actually like to as your job. You're welcome. You're welcome. Uh, I, thank you. That had to be a student. Thank you. Um, hey, I, I just want you to know, like, um, it is a joy for me to get to work with our teenagers. Uh, and if you were here last week, you may have heard me report just a little bit. Two weeks ago, we went to student camp. Uh, we got to go just north of Colorado Springs and spend a week up in the mountains at camp. Uh, just hear from God's word and just be together. Uh, and I loved every minute of it. And one of the reasons I loved uh, my time with the kids was simply because I got to have these like prolonged amounts of time where I got to actually have conversations with them. And you're like, well, Gabe, don't you see them every Wednesday? Yes, I do see them every Wednesday. But Wednesday is like, it's like a circus for me because I'm running around like a chicken with my head cut off to try to make sure that everything is ready to go for the service. And so I don't actually get time with the kids a whole lot to just spit spend like just sitting there and like wrestling with truth or like helping them through just life situations. And two weeks ago, I got to do that. Uh, and so the conversations were by far my favorite part of student camp. But uh, one particular conversation that I want to highlight today had nothing to do with any of those things. Um, so one morning, I got up, uh, went and got my coffee like I normally do. We went to the leader, leaders meeting, me and Gray Toombs, who was the other male adult leader there with me. Uh, and we were going back to the cabin uh, to kind of wake all the boys up, make sure they were all getting out of bed, ready for breakfast. And we saw this group of boys. There's only four or five of them standing there, and they're having a conversation. So like any good youth pastor, I just kind of nestled right into the conversation. And I wasn't going to be a part of it. I was just going to listen. And so I started listening, and I didn't really know what they were talking about. Um, but I think what I deduced from all of it was that they had started to go through cell phone withdrawals. Did you know that this is a thing? I don't know if it's a thing. I just made that up. But if you don't know this, for a week, I took all their cell phones away from them. I said, listen, for a week, you can do without. Like, yeah, amen, right? Come on. So, like, for a week, it'll be fine. Because for a week, I want you to focus on your relationship with the Lord and the relationship that you have with your brothers and sisters next to you. And so, like, without the distraction of the cell phones, let's, let's make a, a pact that we're going to focus on these relationships. And so that's what we got to do. But by Thursday, I could start to feel it a little bit. So they're now having conversations about games that they miss playing on their cell phones. Okay, And so the one in particular that they were talking about was Clash of Clans. Some of you people are like, yeah, hey, yeah, let's go, right? Clash of Clans. I don't know a whole lot about it. I don't play cell phone games uh, very much. And so um, like, I don't, I'm not familiar with this game, but I've seen a lot of students play it. Uh, and so they're like trying to, they're sweet. They're trying to engage me in the conversation. I have nothing to offer this conversation. But it's interesting because like, 
after the conversation was over, I'm, I'm, I leave that conversation, I'm thinking like, so if that was me and my buddies, what would we have been talking about? More, more specifically, what games would we have been playing? And so I started thinking about like the games that I used to play as a kid with my buddies back when we didn't have cell phones. Um, so just as a preface and a caution to you, some of these games will bring back fond memories of your childhood. And for some of you, they will bring back deep-seated scars that you've hidden in the closets and depths of your heart. And so I'm sorry. The other uh, preface to this is I am by no way endorsing for these games to make a comeback. They are idiotic and unwise to play with your friends, okay? Or your enemies, for that matter, okay? So I'm not advocating that these make a comeback. I'm just telling you what life was like back in the 80s, okay? So, um, so the first game I was thinking about was uh, a little game called Pencil Breaks. Do you guys, some of the dads are like, oh, yeah, master that one, right? So Pencil Breaks, exactly what you think it was. Uh, you took your number two pencil and you squared off with another person who had a number two pencil, like, I don't know why they were number twos. Like, like was number one, like, I don't, anyways. So, like, you would, you would square off, and with my number two pencil, I'm going to try to break your number two pencil by hitting it with my pencil sword, right? And we're just going to trade blows back and forth until somebody breaks their pencil. Genius, right? <laughs> What's not genius is to play with the only number two pencil you have for the day. Unwise, all right? And then you always had this joker who came in with, like, the preschool pencil that's, like, this thick. And he's like, yeah, let's go. We're like, that's not, you can't do that. <laughs> the other game that we played that I thought of was, like, if we were standing here, this group of boys, we'd probably play a little game called thumps. You guys remember thumps? You just cup your hands like this. Again, so, so smart. And you just thump the person that you're playing against until their hands hurt so much they don't want to play anymore. This is the game. And you always want to try the person who had never played before because they hold their hands like this and they're like, eh, right? And then you're like, you just bring the finger back and you tuck it all the way back there and you're like, what? Right? You're just hurting people. Gosh. They're just going to get worse, all right? The other one we played was Bloody Knuckles. Anybody else dumb enough to play this stupid game? Well, I still have scars on my hands. Like, hey, I have a great idea for a game. You put your fist out, I'll put my fist out. We'll just bang them together and see who bleeds first. That person loses. Like, what are we doing? Uh, the, the other game that I thought of was Slaps. I know kids still play this because I actually played it with a kid on the bus uh, where you put your hands out like this and somebody else put their hand, puts their hands on top and you just try to smack the back of their hand before they can pull it away. You guys are looking at me like, you must have been an idiot as a kid. Like, but this is what we did. And like, if, I, if, if you missed, now I got to try to hit your hands. These are the games that we played. The last game that I thought about was a little game called Mercy. You guys remember, I can tell by the oohs and ahs in the crowd that you know Mercy. For some of a different generation, you may remember a game like called Uncle. I don't know why you called it uncle. I don't know if it's because you played against your uncle and he just hurt you all the time. You just had to scream. I have these flashbacks of like from the movie A Christmas Story where he's like, uncle, uncle, right? Because he's getting beat up. So, um, so but for, for the sake of an analogy, 
um, mercy is what I'm going with, okay? But I always found it so interesting, this game, because like as we lock hands, right, on the word go, the whole point of it is for me to twist and turn and squeeze and pry and do whatever I can to inflict as much pain as humanly possible that I can do within my little seven-year-old arms, right, onto you so that you have to quit the game. And the only way you get out of the game is to scream the word, mercy! And then at that point, the game is supposed to be over, right? Like at that point, upon that, that word, like the game ends, um, you lose if you cried mercy, and the pain is supposed to stop. The thing that's so interesting about this game to me is that um, you can let it go on for as long as you want to. Right? Like, like you can inflict as much, especially if you're playing somebody much stronger than you, you can inf- let them inflict as much pain as you want on, to, to endure before you cry mercy. Or if you knew you were going against somebody much stronger than you, then you could simply say, ready, set, go, mercy, <laughs> and just save yourself the trouble. As I've been reading and studying through Psalm 28, I've noticed this theme where David continues to cry out for mercy. My question for us to think through as we walk through Psalm 28, where have we gotten into our life to where we've stopped crying out for God's mercy? Are we wrestling with life, trying to control the circumstances or maybe the sin that's in our own lives? And we've forgotten about God's mercy. I think we'll see David has made a habit of continually calling out for the mercy of God. And so today we're going to look at Psalm 28. And in the first two verses, I just want to point out to you our need and David's need for God's mercy. In verses 3 through 5, we'll look at what God's mercy protects us from, the protection of God's mercy. And then in verses 6 through 9, we'll look at... um, our response when we receive God's mercy. So uh, read with me and please stand with me as we read God's holy, infallible, inerrant word. These words that I'm about to read for us are in fact the most important and most powerful words that will be spoken all day today. Please don't miss them. Psalm 28. To you, O Lord, I call. My rock, be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands towards your most holy sanctuary. Do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts." Give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward. Because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the works of his hands, he will tear them down and build them up no more. Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. And in him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exalts and with my song I give thanks to him. 
The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage and be their shepherd and carry them forever. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You guys can be seated. So again, as we look at Psalm 28 today, um, I just want you to picture this ongoing feud in a mercy match, because I'll keep coming back to it. But I just want us to look at um, the first two verses of Psalm 28 as we discover David's own need for God's mercy and maybe our own need as well. I love how this psalm starts that it just says, to you, O Lord, I call. And it's just, when I read this, like, I feel like I've heard this before as though, like, maybe David, this is a regular pattern of events for him to call out to the Lord. And then he addresses him as his rock. I love that. If you, if you have your Bibles open, flip over to Psalm 18 really quickly. I just want to show you where this is coming from because in Psalm 18, David's also going to address the Lord as his rock. In verses 1 and 2, it reads like this. I love you, O Lord. Isn't that a great way to start out a song? Like every song should start out that way. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge. My shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. So even there, like we see David, uh, you can almost feel like an anxiousness in the way that he's writing this. And I think that anxiousness that we feel is probably legitimately coming from him being scared for his life. Like you guys know the story of David that he was often found in places where he was on the run for his life. And it appears that in Psalm 18, he's probably writing this right after or maybe right during some sort of imminent danger that is upon him. And so he's crying out to the Lord, God, you are my rock. He's addressing him, I love you. I need you to save me from these enemies that are coming after me. But, but in 28, in Psalm 28, we don't see or feel that same sort of anxiety as though his life is on the line. And there's really nothing that tells us that it is. But he still refers to God as his rock. I, I love this because David is taking his past experiences from what God has already saved him from. And now he's going to call on him for something else, but still resting on the establishment of God as his foundation. This firm foundation where his feet have planted themselves, where he has found victory in the past. Surely he'll find victory again in this call out to the Lord. So what's he calling for? Well, he tells us in verse 2. He pleads for God's mercy. He pleads for God's mercy. Now, God's mercy, just by the, the easiest definition that I've ever heard, is simply uh, not getting what you deserve. Mercy is simply not getting what you deserve. And so here, David is pleading for God to have mercy on him, that he might not receive what he deserves. But he goes even further, and, I, and this is such a great picture, because he says, When I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands towards your most holy sanctuary. 
Now, if you're a police officer or an ex-police officer, a security officer, ever watched a cop show before, I think that covers everybody. Um, if a, a police officer is approaching a supposed suspect, typically some of the first words out of their mouth is going to be, show me your hands, right? Show me your hands or hands up. And so globally or just really worldwide, like this right here is seen as, as a position or a posture of surrender, that in this posture right here, I'm showing and proving to you that I have no way to be an aggressor towards you, but furthermore, I have no way to defend myself against your authority in this moment right here. I love that David's picture is that he comes to God pleading for mercy with his hands up in total surrender to the Lord. That there's this dependency and expectancy that the Lord will hear his cry. But not only does he just lift his hands in total surrender, he actually does this in the direction of the place where he's seen God's mercy on display in the past. He says he lifts his hands to the holy sanctuary. This would be like the inner sanctuary of the tent, right? This is where the holy of holies would have been held. This is where the sacrifices for the nation of Israel would have been made so that God would atone for the sins of the nation. And so David's looking and he's saying, this is where mercy happens. I've seen it happen. I've seen God not exact his, his judgment on the nation of Israel because of the sacrifice we've made in this place. I'm surrendering the, to this place. For you and I as Christians now, we would not lift our hands and surrender to the holy sanctuary, but rather to the cross of Jesus Christ, where his mercy, his blameless Blood was spilt for our mercy, for our forgiveness of sins. So this is the same posture as we call out for God's mercy at the cross of Jesus. But what are we calling out for? Why, are we, why is David so emphatic in calling out for this mercy? Why does he need it so much? Well, he explains to us in verses 3 through 5. It says very plainly that in verses 3 and 5 that, well, for those that are evil, there is a just and righteous judgment that is coming for them. David's concern is that without God's mercy, that he is then lumped into that same category of sinners. That were it not for God's mercy in his life, his heart is prone to wander just like yours and ours. That he is just as capable of the evil that is in these three verses as you and I are in our own flesh. And so he talks about, um, about these people who speak kindly to their neighbors while harboring evil in their hearts. I mean, this, this is not far from the things that we see in the world today as people uh, just use fluffy words to make themselves feel go good or pay compliments to boost their own egos or to make them look uh, as in a position of authority like people are insincere with their words all the time. He also talks about this in verse 5, because they do not regard the works of the Lord. This is a hard one, man, because like in here I just see all this this ungratefulness of heart for all the things that the Lord has provided. I mean, the fact that the sun came up and he didn't incinerate you because of your wicked heart is mercy. 
Like even this morning, every one of us has received God's mercy. Whether you call him Lord of your life or not, you've still been extended the mercy of God. Make no mistake about it. That his righteous judgment is to do exactly what David says here. It says he will tear them down and build them up no more. And that without God's mercy in our lives, this is where David knows he's going. Friends, this is where we're headed without God's mercy. So there's, there's our need for God's mercy. Here's what his mercy protects us from. But how do we respond? How should we respond today to God's mercy? Well, he tells us in verse 6. He says, blessed be the Lord, for he's heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. So, so you'll remember in verse 2, he says, Lord, please hear my pleas for mercy. And here in verse 6, he says, he's heard him. Like, good news, everybody. God heard my cry for mercy. So what now? Well, he says that the Lord is now my strength. He is now my shield. In him my heart trusts, and now I am helped. Man, this is wonderful news. David now realizes the fact that he no longer has to struggle through life. He no longer has to, 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 to remain in the game of life fighting against all the odds, against the circumstances, against his own sin or the sins that have been committed against him. He no longer has to do these things on his own, but rather he now has experienced the power of God in his own life because of God's mercy. That God is now his strength. It, let me show you one more example. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul actually talks about this a little bit. Because here, here's my fear is that as I tell you about the power and the protection that God's mercy affords to us as believers, you start to think, man, but I'm in a really good place right now. Like, like just living wise, like, I mean, I live I'm in prosper America. Like things are going well, got a good job, family's pretty happy. Like, like we're in a good spot, Gabe, like. All this mercy talk, like, David sounds like he's in a rough, like, he may be in a cave, but, but, but I'm not. Like, things are going well. But I think if we peel back the layers a little bit, we've all got a thorn somewhere. Like, we all have something that we're dealing with or something that we're trying our best to try to control and Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians 12, chapter, or verse 7. He says, So in order to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan harassed to harass me to keep me from becoming conceited. So, so just as things are going really well for Paul, right? People are coming to know the Lord like he's beginning to see the fruit of his labor, and just before he can start to become prideful, God gives him this thorn in the flesh. Why? So that he won't become conceited. So he won't rely just on himself. So he won't continue to wrestle against the world and continue to work in his own flesh, but rather he'll always remain dependent on God. We'll keep reading. In verse 8, it says, Three times Paul pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave, that God would just take this thorn, this one stumbling block that Paul had. We don't know what it was. It doesn't say what it was. But this one thing that he was dealing with that he couldn't quite shake, that thing that he thought he had under control, but he just couldn't quite, it was always going to be a thorn in his side. 
Paul says, I prayed three times for God to take it from me. But here's God's answer. My grace is sufficient for you. And my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly. Listen to Paul. (laughs) He's so crazy. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content, listen to this list, with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Man, here's the thing is that we all need God's mercy, not just that day that we got saved, but each and every day moving forward. Because you see, this position of surrender as we come back to the cross every day, begging for his mercy, pleading for his grace, every day we surrender, it's not a sign of weakness, it's a sign of his power. It's a sign of his strength in us. It's a sign of his protection to allow us to continue to not be conceited and boastful Christians. That we don't go out into the world prideful in our own efforts, but rather relying on the power of God in us and through us. This is how the gospel moves forward. In humble Christians who are constantly relying on the mercy of the Lord to work in their lives that they may share that same love with the world around them. This was the cry of Paul. When I am weak, he is strong. And that's what people need to see. And so when David writes that the Lord is my strength, this is what he's talking about. In full surrender, he has now become my strength. That I don't have to wrestle with my own sins alone. But instead, I cry out to God for his mercy. And I surround myself with other other believers so that we can work through these things together. So no matter what you're dealing with, whether it's anxiety or depression or any multitude of sins or just a broken relationship or, some, or a child that needs to come back or something that needs to be redeemed, like God's power is in this. And he tells us that as our heart trusts him, <laughs> that he's there to help. That as we continue to play this mercy game with the world and with life, It just says, hey, before it gets so hard that the pain becomes unbearable, turn your heart towards the Lord. Tag him in. Cry mercy, and he comes, and he becomes your strength. He comes, and he takes over the fight with you. Like, this is what he means, that his heart exalts. What does that mean, that it exalts? Man, I've read this this verse like a hundred times over the past month as I was just kind of reading and meditating on Psalm 28. And and I've had to replace this word exalts because it's not a word that we use anymore. But it actually means like this joy-filled, jubilant expression of happiness. And so I, I, I just had to write in my Bible that my heart explodes. Like literally the joy of my heart, it causes it to explode at the thought of God's mercy in my life. How does that manifest itself? It manifests itself in a song of praise. Listen to me. This is why that our church services are structured the way that they are. It's not just an order of worship, but rather we sing at the beginning so that we might testify to the things that the Lord has done. We sing truths over ourselves and as an encouragement to our neighbors and our brothers and sisters to the right and left, front and back of us. 
to praise him for what he's done and the mercy that he's shown us to get us here today. And then after, after, after the sermon where we're equipped, we then will sing a closing song. Why? To let our hearts explode for the mercy he continues to show us and that we might take that mercy and that grace and go live out into a world that needs to see it in us. This is the explosion of praise from God's mercy. David closes this psalm with two verses that are really, um, I read them as a prayer. And as the king of Israel, he easily could have um, written this in the form of, God, take care of my people. Um, But he didn't. He wrote it uh, as God's people. And so just even the language that he uses with this is really, really special because it makes it more personal, hopefully, to you and I. It says that the Lord is the strength of his people. That's you and I. That he is the saving refuge of his anointed. And then he just begs them, save your people and bless your inheritance. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. So just really quickly, uh, we've spent a lot of time in Psalms this summer. Uh, We spent a lot of time in Psalm 23. And so the fact that David's going to conclude this psalm with this visual picture of a shepherd, it's just too easy for me, right? Because in Psalm 23, we see where the great shepherd is, is caring for his flock of sheep. He leads them by quiet waters that they might rest and drink and be refreshed. He leads them through the valley of the shadow of death, but they don't have to fear because the shepherd is there protecting them. His rod, his discipline, his staff, his comfort, they're all for the sheep. Like everything that he's doing, his life included is on the line for these sheep. And David says that the shepherd will carry them, carry you and I. And it's this beautiful picture of of not just picking us up in his arms, but actually picking up this wounded, sick, injured, lost sheep and putting him on his shoulders and carrying him like this. But not just through the trials and the hardships that are here in this world, but he carries us forever. It's like this beautiful foreshadowing of the grace that is given to us, where I said that mercy is not receiving what, uh, the consequence for what we've done. Well, grace is getting what we don't deserve. It's the gift portion. So mercy, not getting... Wait, I'm backwards. Not doing what... What did I say? <laughs> not getting what you deserve, and then getting what you don't deserve is grace, Right? And so, like, we've got this beautiful picture of the shepherd, like, not just rescuing us with his mercy, but giving us this gift of continual protection for all of eternity. Like, it's just, it's so beautiful. And so, uh, in closing, like, I I think I want to close like this, is that if you came here today, um, and and maybe you just, maybe you're not sure why you're here, maybe you just kind of limped in the door Uh, Maybe life has just been tough. Maybe you got invited by a friend or you just saw a flag out on Frontier. Uh, But I I believe that you're here for a reason. Um, 
So my encouragement is hear the words of King David as he pleads for God's mercy. And know that the same mercy that he is calling out for is the same mercy that God has offered each and every one of us. If we would simply call out to him, if we'd simply repent and turn away from our sins, cry for his mercy in our lives and surrender our lives over to him, he is sure to help. It says it there that as our hearts turn to him, he comes and he helps. And so I would just encourage you, if that's something that you're interested in doing, uh, come find me or one of the elders or somebody on staff. I'd be happy to talk with you more about that. But if you're a believer and you're here this morning, I just want to encourage you with um, continue to cry out for God's mercy. It's new every single day, and we need it every single day. It is his power that will fill you up to continue to be on mission and live with purpose for his glory and his alone. And the last challenge will simply be, may we with this last song let our hearts explode in praise for all that he's done for us, for the mercy he didn't have to give but chose to through his son, Jesus Christ. Like, may that explosion of our hearts come out of our mouths in songs of praise. I know we're a singing church. Like, we've always claimed that as the trails. And my prayer is that we always will be, but maybe today, maybe today we just let it explode. I told David earlier this week, I hope they tear the roof off this building with their songs of praise after this. Let our hearts exalt the Lord in the mercy that he's shown us. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for, thank you for your sacrifice that has... Um, allowed us to receive mercy in our own lives, that uh, we know as sinful people that we, um, we are due your just and right judgment, that we are sentenced to life apart from you. But it is because, Jesus, of your sacrifice that we cry mercy that we cry mercy, that we would not receive that same judgment, but instead be clothed with your righteousness in the greatest exchange ever, where by your grace we receive that mercy that we've talked about, and we are promised power and protection, but also life forever with you. May we continually in our lives cry mercy. It's in your name we pray. Amen.